All right, so Matt, why can't a T-Rex clap? Because he's got little arms. No, because he's extinct. (laughs) (laughs) Good evening, everybody, and welcome to the graveyard. Thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Adam. And my name's Matt. Now, pull up a tombstone or settle into your casket and get comfortable because this is Graveyard Tales. (laughs) All right, everybody, here we are again. Matt, how you doing tonight, brother? Hey, I'm doing all right. Good, good. uh, I'm I'm glad to be back here. Mm -hmm. It's, uh, It's very... It's very steamy. In oh the, yeah, uh, in the in the in the graveyard south, yeah, uh, or or graveyard east, or or whatever we're calling it these days. <laughs> yeah, I mean it. It's it's been raining here today, and the temperatures gotten up, and so now that it stopped, it's like I'm recording in a sauna. Yeah. <laughs> like, so everybody's getting to see the video. You get to see my potbelly shirt and the and the sweat stains that are going to wind up on it yep. as we go. You can you can tell how far we in are into the episode by the size of the sweat stains. <laughs> yeah, it, it's same way here, man. It raining on and off and raining all around us, and it is muggy and nasty outside. So I I feel for you. Um, but Matt mentioned potbelly, so. Let's let's go on with that. Um, everybody go check out podbelly.com. We're proud members of the Podbelly Network, um, great podcast network, and they've got different shows that you can find, that you can listen to, that you may not normally find, and you can find some information about starting your own podcast. Um, we also want to thank tonight's sponsors, Best Fiends and HelloFresh, and we'll talk a little bit more about them later. While you're on the internet and you're checking out Podbelly, Go over to patreon.com slash graveyard tales and you can sign up for one of our three different um, levels there and you can get bonus material from me and Matt. We're recording at least one, sometimes one and a quickie um, bonus episodes a week for you guys. And those usually run 20 to 35 minutes or so. Um, And for our $10 members, they get the video of us recording each episode. So, If you're interested in that for $10 a month, you can see that, plus get you some uh, stuff that we mail you there, a sticker pack, and get all the bonus episodes. And uh, Matt and I were talking, and I think I'm going to start putting out little Adam's Ramblings things where I kind of go on further topics, uh, you know, what I couldn't ramble out during our episode because it would last four and a half hours i'm going to start typing up and putting on there so you guys get kind of an inner look at how my brain works yeah you can you can get adam's stream of consciousness yep and sometimes <laughs> it may come out that way and just just, blah, just verbally vomit <laughs> yeah. if, you, if you ever thought if you ever thought god i wish matt would shut up so i could listen to the sweet sultry <laughs> sounds of adam's voice 
this will be your chance. Yeah. And <laughs> I may do it audio sometimes, but I think you know, starting out, I'm going to do typing. And so it's going to be little articles like op-eds, <laughs> you know, to start out with. Hey, uh, so that way you can read it in Adam's voice. Yeah. Or you can read <laughs> my article in Matt's voice if you want to do that. That would be interesting. Or Morgan Freeman's voice. Hey, there you go. <laughs> That's like that saying, be anybody, uh, you know, be you unless you can be Morgan Freeman, then be Morgan Freeman. Yeah. Um, so you can go check out uh, our Patreon there and get different levels of subscription. And we're always putting stuff out. We try to keep that updated as often as possible. Um, recently, we just put out a, um, a call for our patrons to give us ideas for different topics that they want to hear. So you can go, you know, if you're a patron, you can vote on different topics that we might do or um, give us suggestions on what we should do next. And we take those seriously. Um, You know, that you're not just typing something in and then we'll never read it. We take those seriously and we put them on our list and we put them high on our list. So if if you're that interested in it, then we're going to bump it up and, you know, do it sooner rather than later. All right, Matt. So let's take a second and let's talk about one of our longtime sponsors, Best Fiends. Now, here's the thing. Ashley and I, as you know, have been going to the gym a lot more now. We go at least four times a week and and we go after work and we work out and we do all that kind of stuff. But that's just working out physically. When I get done there, I like to challenge my brain some. So I like to open up the Best Fiends app while I'm sitting at home after I've showered and everything from the gym and I'm relaxing. I break out the Best Fiends app and then it's like working out my brain. It's kind of like sitting my brain in the pool to swim laps for a little bit, you know, because you got to work out your brain. You got to challenge it some. And the best way and the most fun way that I have found is actually the, the Best Fiends game, trying to match the the different pieces together and kill the slugs and it, it makes the mental workout fun yeah and it and you know and it looks great i mean you know it it, it really it's colorful it's bright the, the characters are funny and cute um so it's it's really a, it, it's kind of a treat for your eyes when you play as well and you know i my job i, I do a lot of hurry up and wait um, so it's always an easy time killer, but sometimes I am in a spot where I can't get a decent data signal. Right. And that's what's great is Best Fiends doesn't rely on your phone's data to be able to play like so many other apps out there. You can pop it out, even if you're in a terrible service area, and still play. And, you know, it's constantly updating. So you've got all new levels. You're never going to run out of new challenges to play um i mean it's it's simple i mean it's the match three it's it's like so many games you've played but yet it's so different and so much more involved and engaging i mean there's a reason they have a hundred million downloads it's true so if you want if you need that little mental break if you need that time if you need that that game that you can just whip out and play anywhere best fiends is right for you That's right. So you can download this five-star rated puzzle game and join 
all of the people playing it. And all you've got to do is go to the Apple App Store or to Google Play and search for Best Fiends. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. That's right. You can play Best Fiends right now. All you have to do is go to the Apple App Store or the Google Play Store and download Best Fiends. That's friends without the R, Best Fiends. Now, Matt, that's all I've got as far as housekeeping and all that stuff in the beginning here. So why don't you tell us, what are we talking about tonight, brother? Okay, so tonight, Adam and I are going to discuss another UFO encounter that you may or may not have heard of. I know I picked up on this one uh, about two weeks ago, and I I just immediately sent it to Adam, and he's like, what is this? Yeah, I'd heard the name, go, but I know nothing about it. I said, go look it up. I said, go look it up. I, I just came across this. I can't believe I haven't heard of this before. I, I guess I had heard bits and pieces of it and mm-hmm. never heard the full story. Um, so when I looked into it, I was like, bingo, we're going to talk about this. Tonight, we're going to discuss the Ken Ross incident and if you've not if you've not known it by that name essentially it's a situation where an unidentified flying object was picked up on radar and the US Air Force went after it and the plane that went after it disappeared yep sounds like a few other ones doesn't it that seems to be yeah. a uh, running theme with some of these so so let's 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 not waste any time. Let's go ahead and get into this because we're going to dig into some aspects of the story that's going to be interesting. So this event happened over Lake Superior on November 23rd, 1953. Now, it was near the U.S. Canadian border and the U.S. Air Defense Command noticed a blip on the radar where it shouldn't have been. So an unidentified object in restricted airspace over Lake Superior, not far from Sioux Locks, which is the Great Lakes' most vital commercial gateway. I mean, it controls the traffic passing through there, Mm -hmm. and and it's run by the Army Corps of Engineers. So an F-89C Scorpion jet, which if you've never seen a Scorpion jet, you need to look it up because they're crazy looking. It's a bad mamma jamma. Yeah. From uh, from Tro Air Force Base in Madison, Wisconsin, took off from nearby Kenross Air Force Base to investigate with two crew members on board. First Lieutenant Felix Moncla, who had clocked about 811 flying hours, including 121 in a similar aircraft to the Scorpion, took the pilot seat while Second Lieutenant Robert Wilson was observing the radar. Right. And uh, like you said, that that F-89C Scorpion is a wild looking plane. Um, And it was one of the top ones they had at the time. Yeah. I mean, it was it was an interceptor jet is what it was. Yeah. It was. Hey, we see something. Go find out what it is. And this was the jet that they used. Right. I mean. And we're going to get into this, but I mean, this sucker was going at the time about 500 miles an hour. Yeah. 
to intercept another aircraft. That's drawing near Mach 1. Yeah. Uh, I mean, 589. I mean, you think about that in 1953, you know, they're just hopping in this plane and taking off going that fast, going after something else in the dark. Yeah, right. Right. What could go wrong? (laughs) But, you know, essentially, you know, here here we are, you know, you're you pick this thing up on radar. It's in restricted, you know, airspace. It's not responding. It's obviously not supposed to be there. So. Uh, Felix Moncla and Robert Wilson hop in this jet. They're going to go check it out. All right. So let's look at Felix Moncla for just a second. We got to look at him. Now, Moncla was born in Mansura, Louisiana on October 21st, 1926 to Felix Sr., a high school science teacher, principal, and veteran of World War One, and Yvonne Baradon Moncla, um, who was a seamstress. Um, he also had two older sisters, Leonie and Muriel Ann. Um, not long after his father had uh, had been hospitalized, Moncla's family moved to Moroville, Louisiana, to live with his uncle and great aunt. Now, Moncla attended high school in Moroville, and upon graduating from high school, accepted an athletic scholarship to Southwest Louisiana Institute. Uh, he played football there, and he received his Bachelor of Science degree. So after graduation, he enlisted in the United States Army and served during World War II as part of the occupation force of Japan. Now, after his service, Moncla attended the University of New Orleans, but re-enlisted in the military at the start of the Korean War in 1950, this time joining the United States Air Force as an officer pilot trainee. So this guy has done a lot. Yeah, he's got some cred. Yes, he does. Now, after spending a few months at a desk job in Dallas, Texas, Moncla was sent to Connolly Air Force Base in Waco for basic pilot training. Um, This is where he met and married Bobby Jean Coleman. Uh, He took his advanced pilot training at Reese Air Force Base in Lubbock and further training on the F-89 Scorpion in uh, Tyndall Air Force Base in Panama City, Florida. Now, in Panama City, Bobby Jean gave birth to their first son. In July 1952, Moncla and his family moved to Madison, Wisconsin, and had a daughter born five months before Moncla's disappearance. So that gives you a little preview into what's about to happen. But let's look at uh, Kitchello Air Force Base in Kinross there. Uh, the reason it's called the Kinross Incident. And this actually comes from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. Um, They had a lot of information about the stuff around there. But as a teaser, not a whole lot of information about this incident, which is weird, huh? (laughs) Yeah. It's remarkably none. Yeah. (laughs) Right. A dearth of evidence, as they would say. Now, the former Kinchelow Air Force Base uh, is a formerly used defense site located in Kinross, Michigan. Kinchelow Air Force Base was utilized by the Department of Defense, or the DOD, from 1942 to 1977. The installation was originally used as a refueling stop for aircraft bound for Alaska and was deactivated after World War II to be used as a civilian airport by the city of Sault Ste. Marie. 
Now, the Air Force reactivated the installation in 1952 to serve as the 91st Air Base Squadron and renamed it Ken Ross Air Force Base. In 1959, the Strategic Air Command, or SAC, established a presence at Kinchelow Air Force Base. A number of larger aircraft, including B-52H jet bombers, began flying out of the base, necessitating extensions of the runway to 12,000 feet. The base closed September 1977. Now, the majority of the former Kinchlow Air Force Base property is now occupied by the Chippewa County International Airport, Kinross Township, and several state correctional facilities. Most of the industrial portions of Kinchlow Air Force Base are owned by either the Economic Development Corporation or the Kinross Township. So that, that Air Force Base has seen a fair share of action and turnover. So, Adam, we mentioned um, the Sioux Locks in the intro um, and how influential it is. Tell us a little bit more about what the Sioux Locks are. Right. So, like you said, they're, they're very important for the, the travel and trade there in the area. And we'll look at that and kind of how it got its start and where it ended up. But... The thing with Sioux Locks being so important, it, it makes me think there was a UFO spotted on radar above them. They always seem to be spotted above very important areas, mm-hmm. Air Force bases, um, big places of commercial travel, um, uh, nuclear facilities, stuff like that. So... I, I don't know if it's just that they're noticed there more because we're watching the skies above it and it's a no-fly zone. So we go, hey, there shouldn't be something there. And that's why that's, maybe we notice it more. That's kind of what I think. You know, that those are the places where people have eyes on the sky. Right. You know, you get stuck way out in the suburbs or something like that. You know, there there's commercial air traffic going over the head. Um People aren't paying as close of attention. Um, it's not a sensitive target. So, you know, it, it, it it's not observed like these other areas are where there would be restricted airspace. Right. So the history of Sioux Locks, and again, this is from the Army Corps of Engineers. Um, the St. Mary's River is the only water connection between Lake Superior and the other Great Lakes. Um, Near the upper end of the river, the water drops 21 feet over hard sandstone in a short three-quarters of a mile long stretch. Now, this rapids, or salt, um, to use the original French term they said, made it impossible for trade vessels to pass. Vessels had to be unloaded and their contents portaged around. Now, in 1797, the first lock on St. Mary's River was constructed on the North Shore to provide passage for trade canoes. Now, the lock was destroyed by American forces during the War of 1812, and cargoes, once again, had to be unloaded and hauled overland and then reloaded, uh, you know, back to continue the journey until the new lock opened in 1855. And that just sounds like a pain in the butt. Yeah. Having to unload a whole ship and then load it back up on the other side. Now, the state lock, which ran from 1855 to 1888, was built 
by the state of Michigan on the south shore of the river. This project was financed by a congressional land grant of 750,000 acres of public land to the company that successfully built the lock to the required specifications and within the two-year deadline. The ENT Fairbanks Company, a Vermont company investing in mineral resources in the state, won the contract and with Charles T. Harvey on site to oversee operations, completed two locks, each chamber measuring 350 feet long by 70 feet wide and 12 feet deep with a lift of nine feet in less than two years. So that's impressive for that time. Mm -hmm. 1855, that's impressive. So let's blow through some of the the rest of these locks because they're not just that one. It it changes. So let's blow through some of these real quick. Now, there's the Weitzel Lock in 1881. It was 515 feet long, 80 feet wide, and 17 feet deep and had a lift of 20 feet. So we've expanded it more. Now, the first Poe, P-O-E, lock uh, from 1896 was 800 feet long, 100 feet wide, and 21 feet deep. Um, This lock would also be the first lock on the St. Mary's River to use lock gates made of steel rather than wood. Now, they had the Davis lock in 1914, the Sabine lock in 1919, the MacArthur lock in 1943, and the second Poe was in 1968. This one was redesigned at its current 1,200 by 110 foot dimensions. Now, the lock began operating in October 1968 and in less than four years would lock through the first 1,000 foot long vessel on the Great Lakes. So, in 1968 was when the lock there um, that we still use basically to this day is uh, w- was built. Um, they call it the Sioux Locks. So, we've heard about Moncla. We've heard about the uh, the locks there that we've got, and we've heard about the Air Force Base. So, Matt, I think we've got enough information now where we can uh, we can thoughtfully go through the rest of this incident. So, let's let's get back to the incident here. Okay, so so here here we are. They've they've picked up something on on radar. It's they don't know what it is. It's it's in an area that is restricted, so it's not supposed to be there, and they need to find out what it is. So the so an aircraft took off uh, on November twenty third to go intercept whatever this was. That's that's the Scorpion piloted by Felix Moncla. Right now the aircraft was under radar control throughout the entire interception. So they they were able to see the Scorpion on the radar as well as the unidentified object. Now, the last radio contact was made by the radar station controlling the interception at about 2352 Zebra. Now, at approximately 2355 Zebra, the unknown aircraft and the F-89 merged together on the radar scope. So hmm. imagine you're you're this, you know, you're this radar uh, monitor guy. I don't know what this <laughs> ra- operator radar control radar operator. Okay, that that sounds better. 
<laughs> radar controller guy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> radar controller person fella. Yeah. He's he's sitting there and he sees the blips on the radar converging and then all of a sudden bam they connect. Yep, they're one blip now. Yeah. So one blip. Problem is the one blip continued to be one blip. There was the 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 second blip never came back. Hmm. So realizing that it, it looked as if they had collided, they began to try to make contact with the Scorpion and Felix Moncla. But the uh the signal, the radar return from the Scorpion jet disappeared completely and they couldn't make any further contact with the F-89. That's scary. So Donald Kehoe, uh, who investigated this matter and would later write books about it, said that essentially the two blips locked together and never separated. Now, the radar operator believed that First Lieutenant Moncla had either flown under or over the target. Now, at the same time, the Scorpion's IFF, or Identification Friend or Foe Signal, like I said, disappeared. Now, the operator continued to watch, expecting that the Scorpion and the object would separate again into two blips, but he became frightened that the two objects had crashed into each other, like what I just said earlier. Right. So, according to the official accident report... The radar for return from the F-89 simply, quote, disappeared from the GCI or the Ground Controlled Interception Station's radar scope, end quote. And then the first radar return indicating the unidentified object veered off and it vanished too. So now you've got, you've got two things that were just vanished off the radar. So it was assumed that the unidentified object, the way it veered, it either took off at a high rate of speed outside of the radar signal, or it elevated. It went straight up beyond what the radar could pick up. Right. Now, ground control attempted to raise Lieutenant Moncla on the radio, but received no response. The operator contacted search and rescue, and he told them that he thought there might have been a midair collision even though he'd seen one of the targets fly away. Now, he had hoping that the two pilots might have bailed out before the uh, collision, and with their life jackets, it was estimated that they could probably survive a short time in the cold water. So they're not just looking for wreckage. They're looking for survivors here. Right, right. So the U.S. Air Force immediately initiates a search and rescue operation, and they also asked for support from Canada. Now, the pilot of another Scorpion joined the search and rescue and said that he heard a brief radio transmission from First Lieutenant Moncla about 40 minutes after the plane had disappeared from radar. No one else heard the radio call, and it could not be confirmed, but there was no other trace of the Scorpion and its crew. Now, all night, U.S. and Canadian search planes circled over the lake and the following morning, boats joined in the search, crisscrossing the area where the aircraft was believed 
to have gone down. Now, you got to understand, these planes, you know, are traveling about 500 miles an hour. You know, it's really difficult to pinpoint where a plane traveling that fast may have landed in the water. Right, and they didn't have the same tracking that we have now on our jets, where they have, you know, pinpoint beacons of where they are. They caught them on radar, and as long as they were on radar, they could tell. But if they went off radar, you know, it's not like they had a homing beacon on them. So they can't just go find that little black box and and see where they're at. Yep. So there was never any evidence of the wreckage or the pilots found. And the Air Force official news release about the disappearance, which was delivered to the Associated Press, stated that the vanished jet, quote, was followed by radar until it merged with an object 70 miles off of Keweenaw Point in Upper Michigan. The statement appeared in a story in the Chicago Tribune with the headline, Jet to Aboard Vanishes Over Lake Superior. Now, you can actually go and look when you when you lead into the story, you're going to see a picture of this headline. Uh, Air Force soon retracted that statement and changed its story. According to the new statement, the ground control radar operator had misread the scope, and in fact, the F-89 has successfully completed the mission, intercepting and identifying the UFO as a Dakota, which was a Royal Canadian Air Force C-47 aircraft flying about 30 miles off course. Now, Lieutenant Moncla they said probably was stricken with vertigo, crashed into the lake during the return to the base. Now we can we can trash Something this now or fishy. we can trash this later. Let's okay. just wait till later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I th- I'm sure everybody else is going, What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, we'll wait till later. The investigative report also said that they contacted the pilot of the Canadian aircraft and he told them that he never saw the Scorpion F-89 and did not know that he was the subject of an interception. The F-89 had crashed, the report concluded, for unknown reasons after breaking off the intercept. Okay. So that's their that was their official statement. Yeah. Monca but- cla- Moncla crashed. Okay. He had completed his mission. And the unidentified object was a C-47 Dakota from the Royal Canadian Air Force that was in restricted U.S. airspace. Right. Which, now, I mean, was not was really not that uncommon. Okay? They, they, they crossed over pretty routinely. Yeah. Um, because they felt like it was good for training and, you know, air defense purposes. But here's the thing. Most likely, they would have identified themselves as as being such. When ground control reached out to the unidentified plane, you better believe they would have said, "Hey, this is this is who we are from the Royal Canadian Air Force Base or Air Force," um, because they were like, "Don't shoot us down, please." Yeah, right. <laughs> you know, we're just flying around up here. That didn't happen. Because like I said, you know, the it, it all of this makes sense, maybe. 
Um, yeah. Except for the fact that the Royal Canadian Air Force files show no report of an incident involving any Royal Canadian Air Force aircraft in the Lake Superior area on the 23rd of November in 1953. The only aircraft nearby was a Dakota C-47 registration VC-912, and it was piloted by Gerald Fosberg, who denied that he was off course or ever in U.S. airspace. Right. So with those denials the of the Canadian Air Force and, and all that, and I mean, you would think that if the Canadian uh, Air Force was there, they would just say, yeah, we were there. We saw him. There would be no reason for them to hide it at all, right? Yeah. But you take that and then you add in, you read the incident report there at the beginning um, of the second part of this incident. And in there... They actually state um, in the in the transcript of that the next sixteen or so letters, as well as an entire next sentence, have been blacked out by Air Force censors. Okay. Yep. So as we all know, redacted things don't necessarily mean that it's unimportant, right? Usually, right. the most important parts are the blacked out and censored parts. <laughs> Typically. The so, parts they don't want to share. Exactly. So keep that in y'all's heads until we get to the end where we're talking about um, the theories. Yeah. And and one thing I realized I did not mention, um, while the Scorpion was, was headed on this intercept, they had instructed it to, to lower its altitude from 25,000 to 7,000 feet, which would have matched the altitude of the unidentified plane or aircraft. So Moncla is now flying at about 7,000 feet and visibility was not outstanding. You know, it was, they were, they were reporting heavy icing in, in, in all clouds. Um, they had about a 10 mile visibility and, but they were going through intermittent periods of snow which would reduce their visibility to about one or two miles while they were in the snow. So I, I go, I go back and say all that to say, to, to make this point, um, you know, flying this mission at night that low with low visibility was not an easy feat. Plus I already mentioned how fast they were going, you know, so it, it you get you get going that fast and you know 7000 feet you know yeah that's pretty high but when you're going 500 miles an hour and you get angled the wrong way the ground can come up and meet you very quickly yes it can okay so the fact that they were flying after this plane another plane a canadian plane which would also have been flying that low in that poor of visibility I don't know. It just, it, it sounds odd to me. Um, but when we're going back, talk about the Canadian plane, you know, Gerald Fosberg, who was the pilot of that, of that plane, or at least supposedly the pilot of, of that particular plane, he denied ever being in us airspace, but he also went forward and wrote a public letter about this. And, and this is the letter that, that Fosberg wrote 
He says, quote, I remember the flight reasonably well and just checked my logbooks to confirm the date. It was a night flight. We were probably at 7,000 or 9,000 feet. Okay. So that, that, you know, jibes with what we're, what we're thinking Mm -hmm. over a solid cloud deck below and absolutely clear sky above. Now, somewhere near Sault Ste. Marie and north of Kinross Air Force Base, I think a ground station, which he said he couldn't remember if it was American or Canadian, asked us if we had seen another aircraft's lights in our area. He said, I do think I recall them saying at that time that the U.S. Air Force had scrambled an interceptor and they had lost contact with it. We replied that we had not seen anything. A few days later, I received a phone call from somebody at Kinross who was carrying out an investigation on a missing aircraft. I could only tell them that we had seen nothing, and that was the last I ever heard of the incident. Now, again, this recollection ties in with the initial statement that the bogey was not aware of any aircraft in the area, and technically it also supports the U.S. Air Force investigation report that the pilot of the unknown craft did not know he was being intercepted and did not see the F-89. However, the pilot of the Dakota C-47 is quite clear that he was never 30 miles off course and that he was never told that the missing aircraft had been trying to intercept him. Right. Okay? So, So here we are. You know, here we are. We've got a strange blip on the radar. We've got a plane that goes to intercept it. That plane vanishes from radar and is never heard from again, nor from the two pilots and no wreckage is ever found. Right. Right. The, the unidentified blip veers off and also disappears. You've got the, the U S air force saying that the unidentified blip was a Canadian plane 30 miles into restricted U S airspace there was no record of any plane being right there, and the only plane that was anywhere near it was indeed a Dakota C-4, and the pilot denies ever being in, in U.S. airspace. It, it sounds like a um, sounds like a Charlie Foxtrot, as my granddad <laughs> would say. Yes. You know, that, yes, that whole, it does. That whole mission was foobarred. So, uh-huh. so Donald Kehoe, who I mentioned earlier, he, he went on and wrote a book called Flying Saucers from Outer Space, in which he claims that the Air Force had secret motion pictures of the apparitions proving that they were interplanetary craft and that this was mm. a big cover-up. Now, according to Kehoe, who, who would write about the Ken Ross incident again in a 1973 book called Aliens from Space, um, two separate Air Force representatives provided Lieutenant Moncla's widow with contradictory explanations of the incident. Now, in one version, they said that the pilot had crashed into the lake while flying too low. But in the other a malfunction caused the jet to explode at a high altitude. Now, this is what they're telling this man's wife. Yeah, wildly different stories. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's strange because 
you know, officially we know that they had instructed Moncla to fly below 25,000 feet to around 7,000 feet to match mm-hmm. what the the unidentified object's altitude was. So to say that it exploded at a high altitude doesn't really make a lot of sense. It makes more sense to say that they crashed into the lake, but why tell them two different stories? Right. You know, why go to the family with two separate stories unless you've got two different individuals or representatives sharing a story that doesn't have a clear outlined, um, what what's the word I'm looking for? A, a clear outlined uh, history. Explanation. Yeah. Explanation. You know, it just, it... You know, if, if the story is this and they say, okay, this is what happened. We can't find the wreckage. You know, it's it was too dark. The, the water is too deep. You know, the weather conditions weren't favorable for us to do a reasonable search before, you know, any wreckage would have sank. Then, you know, but but it all kind of fits together that this is what happened. Fine. You know, this is mm-hmm. going to be your story. You present this story to this man's wife as to, you know, why he's not coming home and you you move on. Yeah. But but for somebody else from the Air Force to go and say, Yeah, we're really sorry, you know, Lieutenant Moncla died when his plane malfunctioned and it exploded at a high altitude. And here's his widow on the phone going, Wait, what? Yeah. Last week y'all told me something different. <laughs> yeah. Now the case file from Project Blue Book, which was the Air Force's own UFO investigatory team, reiterated the Air Force assertion that the jet successfully completed its mission and that the crash was an accident probably caused by an attack of vertigo. Mm-hmm. It attributed the ab- abnormal radar behavior to unusual, quote, atmospheric conditions and deemed the inability to recover wreckage as understandable given the deep water. But why would a radar malfunction only allow the scorpion to disappear, yet continue to track the unidentified object? Right. I've got a um, rebuttal to that, but like we said on the other one, we'll wait till the end (laughs) for me to jump into it. But it just, it, it seems like when... You know that old adage that when you tell a lie, you've got to tell another lie to cover up that first lie, and then you have to tell another lie to cover up the second lie to cover up the first lie. So you end up having to tell all these lies to cover up that one little lie in the beginning, and you'll get yourself messed up and end up telling two different stories. You know, that's how they catch a lot of uh, murderers and stuff like that mm-hmm. is lying. They tell multiple versions of the same event and it, none of them seem to jibe with, you know, what the evidence shows and all that. And you have that with kids. When the kids try to lie about something, they'll, they'll go around and around and telling you all different things. Um, so that that's what it seems like to me with uh, the air force in this situation and why two different stories came to the widow right. is because they were all trying to lie about it. They may have maybe not known the full thing. They weren't let into that, you know, 
Yeah. But they knew they had to lie about it, so they each came up with a different version. Yeah. Now, investigators from the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena discovered that any mention of the mission had been expunged from official records, and the Aerospace Technical Intelligence Center's official line on the case was, there is no record in the Air Force files of sighting at Kenross Air Force Base on 23 November 1953. There is no case in the files which even closely parallels these circumstances. So when we mentioned earlier that, uh, you know, uh, the the evidence that was available was remarkably none, mm-hmm. that's that's the case. Um, you know, there 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 are no official records to go back and review at this point. Right. So in the absence of a thorough and satisfying official explanation, uh, civilian uh, saucer groups, as Project Blue Book called them, came up with their own theories. Of now, course. I, and according to one, the jet had crashed into the UFO's protective beam like a concrete wall. And others speculated that the jet may have been scooped out of the air and taken aboard the spacecraft, perhaps so the captured men could teach their alien captors the English language. Which I thought that was you, you took it a, you took it a little too far. Now you now you're trying to decide yep. what what they were going to do with these two guys. But right, but okay, so sure, I, the Air Force isn't given a reasonable explanation. People come up with their own. And, oh yeah, you know, and, okay, you know, if you if you're a if you're a uh, an alien buff you know if if you're a amateur ufo investigator um this is right up your alley and and you take it and run Mm -hmm. so the the air force has got conflicting stories you know they're they're not being very you know forthcoming they can't give you a reasonable explanation so you come up with your own and you say hey maybe it disappeared because the other craft captured it Yep, it and, disappeared and because off. they needed they needed to learn English. Yeah, that's a little too much. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. Why why would you think that? <laughs> yeah, where did that and uh, where did that come from in any of this? You mean they they abducted two fighter pilots instead of an English teacher? I I just I don't I don't understand that that line of thinking. You know, you had me uh, up until you brought that in. And then when you brought that in, you kind of lost me. And I think oh, that's yeah. that's the problem with a lot of these, um, a lot of UFO theorists, um, they take it too far. Like, right. if you'd have said, okay, now they may have had uh, an interaction with a UFO and the UFO either um, destroyed them or drew them up in their beam. Okay. All right. Plausible as anything else. But then when you say they did that so that they could learn English, then I'm like, well, not, no, not going to listen to you anymore. (laughs) I know. I I loved, I loved that though. And uh, you know, the funny thing was, is there were more that were kind of really outlandish that I just left out. So yeah, they they were just not even, not even reasonable. So as we said, there was never any evidence found um, from the Scorpion jet that was flown out to 
do this intercept. But in 1968, airplane fragments were found near the eastern shore of Lake Superior, and an officer with the U.S. Air Force confirmed that the fragments had come from a military jet aircraft, and the local local news report speculated that these might be from the missing Scorpion F-89. But however, no other information was ever published, and the Canadian government doesn't appear to have any record of this find. So... You know, this was a story that came out. They don't have any actual um, fragments that they can produce, look at, study, whatever. It was just a story that came out, and, you know, now you try to go back and look, and there's no record of it. Right. So it, it, it cropped up briefly. They said that it looked like military. It did not necessarily say that. We're talking about local news said it was possibly from the missing Scorpion, um, but that was it. You know, yeah. there there was yeah. there was nothing ever ever done further. Yep, and you can get local news stories like that that are way off base and exaggerating something simply to make a headline. Sure, um, or just being hopeful. You yeah, know, maybe it yeah. is. You know, it's a good it's a good way to to lead into a story and then bring an old story back. You know, fill some time it's newsworthy you know we're talking about from 1953 to 68 there's probably people that didn't weren't even aware that that had happened um and and, you know now it's a it's a brand new news story to them and it kind of crops it up so sure you know why not right and like you said not much came of that um but we do have something that a little a little more um came of it um, now, there's a company called the Great Lakes Dive Company. Um, and in the summer of 2005, the Great Lakes Dive Company um, said this company is composed of engineers and professional divers. So it, it's people that know what they're doing. Um, they decided that they were going to test some new a- equipment they had on two wrecks that had sunk in 1919. So through a series of technical glitches and lack of time, they instead decided to spend some time looking for the F-89. So they're out in the area. They're going to try to, um, you know, they know there's these two two wrecks that happened in 1919, so they were going to go do that. Well, some stuff happened. They said, you know what, let's just, we're out here. We got the equipment. Let's see if we can find the F-89. So they had a search grid of possible areas that the F-89 could have gone down and using their new wide trajectory side scan sonar, they were amazed on their first pass to locate what turned out to be the missing jet, or so they say. Now, what is even more incredible, on closer examination of the surrounding area using the company's ROV, their remotely operated vehicle, some 215 feet from the aircraft, there was a metallic object partly buried in the sand. Now, this goes on to say that it is believed that this is just the top of a much larger craft, and it will only be through subsequent investigation um, that they will reveal the full size. Now, the object was 15 feet long by eight and a half feet wide. Now, the the photographs of the of what they saw were actually published on the Great Lakes Dive Company website. Yeah, so people, I'll post them in Patreon. Yeah, so people had access to these photos, and they could see it for themselves. 
but that was it. I mean, you know, they had the story and these photos and and just kind of laid it out there like a turd and they said, Hey, everybody come get a whiff of this. Right. And I'll post pictures of um an F eighty nine in Patreon along with the pictures that they produced. Um, so you can look at those and then you can give us what your thoughts are on it, the validity, the whatever that you think on there. But a spokesperson for the Great Lakes Dive Company um, concluded that it was highly unlikely that on the lake bed with no other debris for miles that the jet and the adjacent object were not interconnected. To date, the Great Lakes Dive Company have been banned from further exploration until they reveal the location of the F-89 to the Canadian government. Now, it says, while this request is reasonable for the recovery of the F-89, it is imperative that further investigation of the teardrop craft remains in the hands of the Great Lakes Dive Company. It would be all too easy for various governments involved, uh, both Canada and America, to hijack this discovery and quietly recover the two crafts. It says this must not happen. This case must be broadcasted far and wide so that a legitimate and open uh, understanding of whatever lies at the bottom of Lake Superior is available to all. Now, I do agree with that in one sense, that... If you just give the coordinates to what could be this F-89 and a partial of a supposed UFO that they caught on radar to the governments, they would probably make that disappear. And then you go back out there and can't find it. And they say, don't know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It was never there. Yeah. You know, don't know what you're talking about. So I understand like a third party doing the, the investigation of it. But I also think maybe you should get more people involved because what else has come of this, you know? But let's take a little closer look at the Great Lakes Dive Company. Now, the spokesperson for the Great Lakes Dive Company was uh, Adam Jimenez, and he was the one that confirmed the discovery. He was the one that spoke to the reporters. Now, Jimenez said that the images had been made with a fish finder which it, it, it was a sounder used by commercial fishermen to locate schools of fish underwater. Now, journalists began to become suspicious, and they started to dig a little bit deeper. Now, it soon became clear that the Great Lakes Dive Company didn't really exist outside of these announcements. Hmm. Now, they couldn't, Fishy, huh? yeah, they couldn't find any biographical information or background on Adam Jimenez. Um, all that existed under his name were an email address and a cell phone number. And local people involved with the shipwreck hunting and maritime history in the Great Lakes had never even heard of Adam Jimenez nor the Great Lakes Dive Company. Then three weeks after the discovery, the website with the photos disappeared and Adam Jimenez no longer answered his phone nor responded to emails. So the whole, the whole great lakes dive company thing is widely considered to be a hoax at this point. Right. Right. You know, so it, it, it's really difficult to, 
to wrap your head around this. Um, why in 2006 would would anybody come forward with information and photographs, even if they were fabricated, about this incident in 1953? It, yeah. it just it seems like okay. You know, yeah, it's 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 a cool incident. You know, it 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 could be you know alien related. So we're gonna we're gonna run with that. This seems like a huge risk. Okay. Oh, for sure. With probably little to no reward at all. All it's gonna garner you is a bunch of unwanted attention from people you don't want attention from. Namely, yeah. government, the government, yeah, Canadians and United States. Mm-hmm. You know, so you're you're you know you're you're talking about a situation where you start putting out these photos, you start making these claims that yeah, we need a third party um, to to do all this uh, this research and and go down there and see what's really there, just to kind of quote unquote keep it clean. You know, yeah. we're, we're not going to let the government come in here and pull this stuff out and continue to hide things. Now, that's either true or that was just a way for them to kind of garner some support for the government staying out of it. But let me yeah. tell you something. You've got a military aircraft from any government at the bottom of any body of water, and you think you're just going to decide that you're going to go down there and investigate it? Wrong. Yeah. <laughs> that They're not going to let that happen. happening. Okay? No. For, for one, it doesn't matter how old it is, that's government property, and you have no right to it. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, uh, and I'm, I'm speaking, to, you know, as if I'm the government. You know, they own that plane regardless of whether it's crashed or not and regardless of how long it's been down at the lake. We own it. We're going to go get it. And you're going to you're going to keep your hands off of it. So that was foolish to begin with. It it may be right, but it wasn't going to happen ever. No, no. And I, I feel like in a way that whoever Adam Jimenez was, um, I feel like he could have been contacted by a government official, thus why the website went down and he no longer returned calls because they may have said something to him, you know, in a threatening manner that if this is legit, you tell us about it. If it's not, you disappear real quick. Right. You're going to be in trouble, you know. So I, I think that that could be part of why it just everything went away. And And it could have been. Hey, you know, you you may have found something. You're going to leave it alone and you're going to quit talking to reporters. Mm-hmm. You know, we're going to go down there and we're going to figure out what it is. You're not going to say anything else about it. Yeah. And I'm telling and you, that, you get a you you get the right government people telling you to back off, you're going to back off. Oh, sure. You know, that's just and that's just how it's going to work. The Adam Jimenez could have been a pseudonym to keep himself out of trouble. And he probably made up the Great Lakes Dive Company because it may have just been him yeah. that found it. And he wanted to sound more fanciful, I guess, you know, and in that sense, if that's the case, if he did find something, which you can look at the pictures on Patreon and tell us if you think they're real or not. If he did find something and he wanted to make it seem legit, mm-hmm. he did that. 
but then like we were saying they got contacted yeah and they realized he was full of it with the great lakes dive company and all this other stuff and they made him back off yeah and that if that was there i doubt it's there anymore yeah but i think it's pretty um it it it, it it's fairly maybe naive to believe that a couple of divers just got lucky and found this mm-hmm. when on the first pass. Yeah, and governments had been hunting for it, you know, for a period of time and never found anything. All of a sudden, you know, 50 some odd years later, they they come across it just out, yeah. you know, testing some fish finder, and that's another thing. The description of the equipment that they used with these the side scan images mm-hmm. experts said that th- that 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 equipment could have not been what took those photographs if they were legit now they said the the images couldn't have been made with a fish finder in the 500 feet deep waters where right, the wreckage right. supposedly was found said those images in that water would have required toad scanner to produce images of that quality in the deep murky water of Lake Superior. And even the local community and UFO researchers agree that the supposed discovery was probably a hoax. Yep. So, you know, it, it just seems strange, you know, why it would have just cropped up like that. Maybe, maybe it was just somebody looking for attention. And like I said, they got the wrong kind um, and mm-hmm. just had to quickly go, oh, we got to ditch this. You know, yeah, yeah. You know this. This might have been a you know a, a fun little lark to 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 get some attention. Um, yep, get on the news. My thing was is if the Great Lakes Dive Company was real, they pull something like this um, to get some attention for their company, and you know, next thing you know, they have a big boom in business. But they, there, there's no record of that company even existing. So I, I'm right. like, what what gain were you going to get from this? Yep. Just it was most likely some local dude that had heard about the story and was trying to garner a little airtime, his 15 seconds of fame on the local news. But you mentioned earlier, Matt, that there are theories about this. Right. And that you and I need to bash some of these theories. So I feel like bashing something. So why don't we start let's, bashing? Let's do some bashing. Okay. Let's let's talk about some some possible theories of what may have really happened. Um and and, and why these uh, these stories between the US and Canadian governments may differ. Um one one explanation is that it was a test of electronic countermeasure equipment designed to create false images on enemy radar. Now, in this scenario, ECM operators create a blip on an area that they know that the United States Air Force would be monitoring to test to see if they can fool an experienced military radar operator. Now, it would be done at night so that any air crew that was scrambled would to intercept would have to rely on radar to find their target instead of acquiring it visually. And we already talked about visibility was fairly low. 
But the F-89 was able to pass through the location of the blip without the crew reporting that they had found anything because there was nothing there to find. It was was literally just a blip on the radar. Mm -hmm. Now, officially, the United States Air Force Investigation Board concluded that the F-89 had crashed into Lake Superior at the time radar contact was lost. Um, and, And later the United States Air Force suggested that the F-89 had probably crashed into Lake Superior on the way back. So they contradict themselves in the same story. You know, they're telling you that it had crashed. First time they say it crashed right after it intercepted the other aircraft. Second time they're telling you that it crashed while it had intercepted the aircraft and determined that this is what it was and had come back. Here's the funny thing. There's no radio transmission from Moncla that says, hey, it was a Royal Canadian Air Force plane. You know, hey, we've got we've got a visual. It's a Dakota. They're off course. Yada, yada, yada. We're on our way back. Because, again, as I said before, it wasn't uncommon for the U.S. or Canadian Air Force to fly into the other airspace. You know, it it was it was considered to be a training thing. Mm-hmm. But again, if if you're if you're in a jet that is intercepting an unidentified aircraft and you identify yourself, if that is a friendly, it's going to identify itself as such. Sure. Because if if you're intercepting this thing and you realize, hey, this is an enemy craft, you're going to open fire. Oh or, yeah. Or they're going to start scrambling a lot more jets. Yep. And they specifically said that that IFF um, thing went offline. Yeah. Like so, there, was, there was no friend or foe call at all. Right. So they had no idea that this is what it was at the time because Monkla never said that's what it was. Mm-hmm. Now, another possibility that is thrown out there is that the F-89 was captured by the UFO that it was chasing. Now, I mean, that's, that's a, that's a fun theory to believe. Um, but there's really no evidence to that either. Um, it's just, it just gets stranger and stranger when you consider that the plane essentially just disappeared. Yeah. There have been other cases though, where that, like this is not the first time that theory has been brought up about a disappearing craft. You know, we we may get into other ones down the line where this is also a theory, but if we're saying that it's a UFO, like a legit not of this world craft, yeah, that is in our airspace, that is one of the options that they could probably do. Yeah. You know, they probably have the technology to capture it or blow it out of the sky, one yeah. of the two. Yeah. Now, the the idea that the F-89 had crashed um, at the time of the interception kind of makes sense because had it crashed into the lake, it would have probably broken up into a lot of little bitty pieces and only small pieces of floatable debris would have remained on the surface along with fuel, oil, hydraulic fluid, things like that. And the fuel would soon evaporate and 
maybe even the oil slick would break up due to the action of waves and, and surface currents. And we already knew that visibility was poor, and, and, and so was the weather during the first day of the search. And they weren't 100% sure where they were looking. Sure. So given the delay where they weren't immediately able to return to that area and, and look at it and see, was there any sign that there was a wreck? Um, you know, like I said, oil, fuel, something on the surface. Without that, you know, it's very possible that there would have been no sign of it at all, that everything else right. would have sank and it would have broken up into so many pieces, it would have been difficult to determine. Which that throws a, a wrench into the whole Great Lakes Dive Company photos and theory that they were able to find it, because if it did crash, there would be quite a bit of wreckage um, spread out over an area you wouldn't see a big hunk that you could identify. And you speaking of crashing, Matt, one of the things that they said he crashed because of um, is vertigo. Yeah. Right. So my problem with the vertigo thing is this is a guy who's clocked 811 hours of flight time, 121 of those in a craft similar to this F-89. So a pilot with that amount of experience it's going to be highly unlikely that one time they experience vertigo and they crash and their co-pilot who's with them is not able to help save the craft. Yeah. You know, you would think that if the pilot did get vertigo, let's say he just had a freak thing of vertigo as he was doing something, that the other pilot in there could at least get it to a safe area or leveled out or that he would have radioed in, hey, Moncla's having vertigo, we're we're in trouble. They wouldn't just boom be gone. And you know, vertigo with a pilot is not an uncommon thing, especially when we're talking about, you know, a flight mission that is completely reliant on radar. You know, you're over open water and you know, you've got low visibility as it is. You know, so kind of getting yourself turned around and not being able to determine which which sides up, you know, you could and and flying as low as seven thousand feet, you know, you could easily get turned around and feel like you're, you know, you're headed parallel to the ground, and in truth, you're headed straight down because you, you don't yeah. have you don't have anything to go by other than your instruments, and if if you get turned around enough, I mean, everybody's experienced this. You're sitting at a red light and a car next to you starts to back up or do something and you feel like you're moving and all of a sudden you're like, oh my God. You know, yeah. so, um, you know, that that's something that could have happened. I think it's a legitimate explanation. There's just no evidence that that's what's happened. Yeah, I mean, to me, the the only problem I see with that is if he was flying visual, then I get that. Like, because you can get turned around visually um, that way very easily over open water and open sky. But these pilots, a lot of times, and and if you're a, a Navy pilot out there or Air Force pilot, let me know if I'm totally off base. But from my understanding, a lot of times they are trained on just instrument 
oh, piloting. Yeah. So yeah, they're, they're instrument rated. Yeah. So they're able to say without visuals, he would be able to tell from his altimeter and all this, if he's level, if he's what a lot easier than if it was visual, if his instruments went out and he was trying to fly, you know, without instruments, then I see that as being high, more highly possible. Yeah. So let's say that's the case. His instruments went out and he was over the Great Lakes and that's what caused him to get the vertigo and crash. Then the question is, what caused his instruments to go out? Mm-hmm. Was it just a weird anomaly, a freak accident? Or was something interrupting his yeah. instruments? Or what? But I would I would assume that a pilot with his experience level in a low-vis situation like that could rely enough on his instruments to not get that turned around. Yeah, and he wasn't in a plane that he was unfamiliar with. Right. I mean, you know, he was flying a plane that he had he had booked, you know, a lot of hours in. So he, he knew how that plane, you know, would work and operate even under low visibility situations. Let's look at a, at a couple more. Um, there There is a theory that they can't find any wreckage because they're looking in the wrong place. The last place of contact with the F-89 was in Canadian airspace. And the search of Lake Superior was coordinated by the Royal Canadian Air Force Eastern Area Rescue Coordination Center based in Trenton, Ontario. The U.S. search efforts were led by the 49th Air Rescue Squadron from Selfridge Air Force Base near Detroit, Michigan. Now, as often as case in such research efforts, the search teams received many tips during the course of the operation concerning observations submitted by members of the public who thought they may have been related to the F-89 disappearance. Now, one such report was made by um, an Algoma Central Railway rail (laughs) (laughs) railway. That is one of those words that trips me up every time. It doesn't seem hard, but the tongue doesn't doesn't like it. Yep. One such report was made by an Algoma Central Railway maintenance crew, which was operating at Lemur, a short distance west of Wawa, Ontario, on the night of the F-89's disappearance. The railway workers reported that they heard a low-flying jet followed by the sound of the plane crashing. Originally, investigators dismissed this report because... The, the reported time for the incident was beyond the time the F-89 could have been in the air with its limited fuel supply. Now, later, a witness indicated that he was possibly wrong about the time. Now, with coaxing from the father of 2nd Lieutenant Robert Wilson, the United States Air Force reopened the search. The second search was conducted by the United States Air Force in the spring of 1954. The second air search covered a large land area to east of the southeastern shore of Lake Superior. The early part of the search was hampered by snow coverage of the rough terrain, and the later part of the search was hampered by the ground being obscured by emerging leaves on deciduous trees. The search provided no new clues on the fate of the F-89. So they, they redirected their search, but they still didn't find anything. With, with these reports from civilians that they had heard 
what sounded like a jet and heard what sounded like a crash. The the thing about this one is is had this had the Scorpion managed to fly into Canadian airspace long enough to get this close and crash, it would have been picked up by Canadian radar. Mm-hmm. Okay, yet there isn't any evidence from you know the Canadian Air Force that they picked up Lieutenant Monkle's plane that night. And it's also interesting to note that there are no radio communications or radar tracking problems for the F-89 search flights piloted by Lieutenant Mingenbach and Lieutenant Nordeck and Captain Bridges who were, um, who were working on the search efforts. Now, the jets piloted by these Air Force officers flew through the same weather as Moncla and Wilson earlier that evening. So none of those pilots report having any problem at all. Yep. And the same area, I assume, which, too. Which kind of goes back to Adam's you know, idea that if the theory is, is that Moncla developed vertigo, you know, we're talking about a skilled pilot in a plane that he was familiar with. All these other guys didn't have any problems, and they were doing mm-hmm. virtually the exact same thing. Yep. Okay. Now, this this last one, you know, we're going to talk about this idea that the, the F-89 was captured by the flying saucer. So I mentioned Donald Kehoe earlier, who's written a couple of books about this incident, who claims that the United States Air Force not only has photographs, but actually motion pictures that indicate that this was an alien aircraft. So Donald Kehoe was woken by a phone call on the night the F-89 was lost and told of a rumor at Selfridge Air Force Base that the F-89 was lost after, quote, colliding with a flying saucer. Now, the United States Air Force... What a phone call to get. I know. Can you imagine being woke up in the middle of the night um, and being told this? No. I, I would... I would find like I wouldn't be able to sleep for days after that. It's like what? <laughs> and so this is where Kehoe kind of uses his theory that this is a cover up. Now Kehoe and a friend discussed the diff- disappearance of the F eighty nine after it merged with the alleged UFO, and the lack of any wreckage, and concluded one possible explanation was that the F eighty nine and crew were captured by the UFO. Now, as I said, to this day, we, we, uh, we, we hadn't found any wreckage, and we do not know who called Donald Kehoe and alerted him about the rumor that an F-89 had been lost after colliding with a flying saucer. We do know that Selfridge Air Force Base played a key role in, uh, during the intercept and search efforts. The alert called by Selfridge uh, the, the alert was called by Selfridge, so it is clear that they were aware of the real reason for the alert, whatever it was. It seems apparent that several radar sites in the U.S. were monitoring the flight of the F-89, so there were probably at least 10 or 20 observers of the intercept at the three or four GCI sites. Now, most of these observers have kept a low public profile and have opted to remain silent about what they witnessed that night so Mm. not only 
it's funny because you 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 get the from the the main the main radar operator at Kenross, you get that story of what they saw, but what you don't hear in the in the, in the original telling is that there were 20 or 30 other people that had to have witnessed this on radar at the same time. And they didn't come forward. You know, they are not in interviews. You know, they're not discussing it. But right. somebody apparently called Donald Kehoe to tell him this right after it happened. So the the so, idea is the theory is is that someone at self at Selfridge Air Force Base knew exactly what happened and was alerting Donald Kehoe. Yeah, I wouldn't you like to know who that was? Oh yeah, who was that? Who was that guy? And so Kehoe said he never did. He say who exactly? Like he knew who it was? No, he he or did he say he, he just know who it was either? Okay. And I don't know if I mentioned this earlier, but Donald Kehoe was a retired um, Marine Corps pilot. You know, so it it wasn't like they just picked this dude out of a hat. I mean, he was he was involved in these type of investigations, and and so someone alerting him knew that this would be something he would want to know about. Right. So I mean, you know, there you go. I mean, we have we have stretched this little story that I came across to you know, a, a, a long discussion about, you know, something that we, it, it always seems to come up when we talk about UFO sightings and aliens and whatever, some type of governmental cover-up that someone actually knows exactly what happened, but they're not telling it, you know, either because right. they don't want to incite panic or it's, it, it, you know, it's so confidential because, we, we can't tell the public that we had a, a jet and two pilots that were abducted by a UFO. We, you know, we, we just can't tell that kind of information. It's, it seems outlandish, yeah. you know, people are going to lose their minds and we're going to look like idiots. Um, yeah. but they're going to sit back and they're going to say, but we know that's what happened. Or we know that that was either we, we still don't know what it was. It flew away. Um, or we know exactly what it was and we're not telling because we're going to, we're going to, they know what it was. We're going to wait, see if another one comes around. We're going to try to figure that out too. But, um, jumping back to the, I thought it was funny that they, that the great lakes, uh, story, the great lakes, uh, dive a company story included the fact that they found part of this flying saucer. They thought, and, and it was obvious that whatever the unidentified object was, Flew away. Flew away, yep. Okay, so... Yep, that, so was, that was my thought, too. If that was a big enough chunk, how did it fly away? Right. You know? So, I mean, you know, look. Tell us what you guys think. I mean... Th- yeah, th- like, the theories are everywhere. Yeah, it's wild. This is, this is a story, like I said at the beginning of the show, you might not be familiar with. If if you're a big UFO buff, you've probably heard of it. You know, if 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 you mm-hmm. if you track MUFON, you know, daily, you know, you you already know, you know, this story, but I imagine a lot of our listeners haven't. Um and so tell us what you think. You know, do do you think the government actually knew what was going on um and just covered it up? I mean, we've got some, you know, conflicting stories from the United States Air Force at that time. Um, you know, 
FOIA documents don't really help. They're not giving any information about it. In fact, you know, there's really no record that it ever even happened officially. So. Right. And what there is has been blacked out and censored. Right. So. So what do you think? Do do you think it's possible that they. uh, uh, Wilson and Moncla collided with a with a UFO that caused them to to crash into Lake Superior. Do you think that their plane was was captured by a UFO and that's why we hadn't been able to find any type of wreckage or is and this, they've been teaching the UFO people English this whole time. That's right. <laughs> you imagine they're standing at a little, at a little blackboard with a stick going the quick mm-hmm. Brown Fox jumped over yeah. the lazy yeah. dog, you know, um, how now Brown cow. <laughs> and you see like the, the, you know, like the the Simpsons aliens sit there, tried to repeat it back to them. They're smacking <laughs> right. them with a ruler on their tentacles. You know? <laughs> but you know, it, it's it's a it's a really cool story to to kind of dig in and speculate because you know if you think the 2006 Great Lakes Dive Company thing was just a hoax and it's not real, then we still don't know any more about this than we did in 1953. Right. Um. And as Adam said, theories abound. So what is yours? You know, is, is this, is this a possible, um, you know, military interception of, you know, an alien aircraft that resulted in the disappearance of, of two pilots and, and an F-89 Scorpion jet. Mm -hmm. Or do you think it was just, uh, he got turned around instruments failed and he got turned around and he crashed and you know their story one of the many stories they told was true um if yeah, either one of those or or if you have your own theory about it uh let us know we'd we want to hear them yeah and the best place to let us know is in our facebook group and you can go on facebook Search Graveyard Tales. You will find the show page, and you will also find our Facebook group, which we call The Graveyard. Um, Well over 5,000 members. Uh, It's a great group to be. It's a safe place to kind of share thoughts and ideas and personal experiences. Um, You know, a lot of of fun stuff, and people post in that group every single day. It is is fantastic. Um, You can also see us on other social media, Instagram and Twitter. Uh, just go and search Graveyard Tales, and then you can head over to our website. It's graveyardpodcast.com, and on our website, you can learn a little bit more about Adam and myself. You can listen to the show. You can find links to purchase Graveyard Tales merchandise, and you can become a patron. And as Adam mentioned earlier, we are, we're putting out video of us uh, recording the show on our, on our Patreon channel. Um, and uh, we thank everyone who has donated to the show and hope you're enjoying that extra content that uh, we provide for y'all. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that's all we got. We've, 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 we've dug this all the way down to the bottom of Lake Superior. So. Yes, we have. <laughs> Until next time, we'll save you a seat in the graveyard. See you soon. Oh, my God. (laughs) Walk right into that one. Yep, you're welcome.